You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Andy. I was a member here, um, and now I work for a church through in Edinburgh called St. Catherine's. Um, it's great to be here and to see so many people that I don't recognize. Uh, God's really doing amazing work in this church, and it's so encouraging to see it grow. Um, so thank you for your support. Thank you as well for your prayer support, uh, even just as John was praying there. Um, the church that I'm a part of is, is going through quite a difficult time at the moment, and uh, we really appreciate gospel partners, and it's a real testimony to, to the church and why the church is so important. So we really appreciate you guys and what you have done for us and how you have been praying for us as a church. Um, this morning, what I want to do is just really simply, just I want to look at the cross and what the cross of Jesus is all about. And I want to do so by looking at Matthew's gospel and what he has to say about the cross. Because what Matthew does as he writes about the last moments of Jesus' life is not merely just to record the events as they happened. He's not just recording facts for us, but actually he records them in such a way so as to teach us what these events mean. See, Matthew's not just a historian, but he's a preacher. He's trying to make a point. And the way that he structures uh, the last events of Jesus' life It's just wonderful. Matthew's an absolutely masterful writer. And he does so in a way that explains to us what actually happened at the crucifixion. It's really, I don't think it's an overstatement at all for me to say that the passage that we are going to look at this morning in Scripture has to be one of the most breathtaking passages in the entire Bible. It really is astonishing. And when you feel the weight of what Matthew says in this passage, I just think that it's mind-blowing. And I hope that really as we look at this, we'll just see how magnificent the cross of Jesus really is. Because I know that for some of you here this morning... The cross of Jesus is is nothing more than just a word. It's something that you know about, but we've sort of become cold and indifferent to how powerful it actually is. The cross has become almost just formulaic. It's like a means to an end. But there's nothing that strikes wonder into your heart. And I pray that as we look at this passage, that wonder will be recaptured and we'll see just how magnificent the cross is. And I know that for some of you here today, actually, the cross of Jesus probably doesn't mean anything. You don't understand probably why it's so important to us as Christians. And I hope that as we look at what Matthew has to say in this passage, that you'll understand why the cross is central to Christianity and why Christians value the message of the cross above and beyond anything else in this world. So let's turn and look at the passage. It's um, in Matthew chapter 26, page 997. um, We're going to read from verses 36 to 46, page 997 of the church Bible. Um, It's Jesus praying in a garden 
called Gethsemane, and it's actually the night before he is crucified. But I think really what you see in this passage, in some sense, offers a clear description of what actually happens at the cross than when Matthew records the crucifixion itself. So Matthew chapter 26, verses 36. Let's read it. And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returns to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. There are some moments in life where you have to make a big decision. And what you do in that moment, how you play things in that moment, could have um, radical consequences for the rest of your life. Should I marry this person? Should I accept this job? Should we start having kids? Big events that could very well determine what your future will be. Well, in the history of humanity, there has been two monumental events in which not only the fate of an individual, but the fate of the entire human race throughout history has hung in the balance. And both those events took place in a garden. The first began way back at the beginning of time when God created the first human being, Adam, and placed him and his wife in the Garden of Eden. And we read in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve were told by God to obey him. But they chose rather to disobey him. They chose to serve themselves and they rebelled against their creator. And as such, the entire human race from Adam was placed under the curse of God. And it means that we, by our nature, are rebels of God, choosing to ignore him, choosing to serve ourselves. That is our default nature. And that means that we are alienated from our creator. That is why there's wickedness in this world. That is why there's brokenness. That is why there is suffering. That is why there's death because humanity is alienated from its creator. See, that first event in the Garden of Eden done by our father Adam has meant that we are all cursed and placed under God's judgment. 
But what we read in Matthew 26 is another event in a garden where humanity's fate hangs in the balance. And this time, instead of Adam, we have Jesus Christ, God the Son, thinking on the task that God the Father has given him. Jesus has come for this moment. He has come into human history to reconcile us back to God, to undo what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. And if he does his Father's will, it will mean that salvation will be made possible for everyone and that reconciliation will be available to all mankind. If he doesn't, then there is absolutely no hope for humanity. You see, the cross, which is now starting to loom on the horizon of Matthew's gospel, that is where this salvation is going to be achieved, but it's here in Gethsemane that we can see what will happen at that cross. And so to that end, I think there are three key things to know about Gethsemane that will help us to understand just really what Jesus did at the cross, and it will help us to understand what's happening in this passage. And the first key thing we need to see that sort of dominates the passage is the torment of the cup. That's the first thing we need to see in this passage, the torment of the cup. Jesus goes to the garden to pray to his father and and just notice the anguish that he is feeling. Uh, Look in verse 37 there. We see that he is sorrowful and troubled And those words in English don't seem to do justice to the anxiety he's feeling because look at what he says in verse 38. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You see, Jesus isn't just feeling a little bit sad or a little bit worried here. The anxiety that he faces at this moment is so overwhelming that it is no exaggeration to say it almost kills him. It is that bad. Something terrible is happening to Jesus here. Something that that forces him to fall to the ground in agonizing stress. And what makes this really striking is that Nowhere in the Gospels is Jesus like this. Nowhere does he come under this kind of depth of anguish. In fact, all throughout Matthew, he's been completely the opposite. That's what's so striking about this passage. Matthew has been showing us that Jesus is this confident, powerful, messianic king. He can drive out demons. He can still the waves. He can stop storms. He has control over nature. He has control over illness. He has control even over death itself. He's teaching with all power and authority. In fact, it seems in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is just completely untouchable. He's talked about his crucifixion. He's talked about his death. And he's done so, it seems, very confidently. But this is different. There's something happening here that, that in Gethsemane that, that takes the king of kings who has existed from all eternity and throws him to the ground in anguish. Let me say that it is not the fact that he is about to die. 
That's not what torments Jesus in this dark hour. Think about it. There have been many martyrs throughout history, throughout the history of the church, who have actually probably died worse deaths than crucifixion. And often when when you read about some of these martyrs, they've done so in in a way which is very bold and very confident, in a way which shows a degree of uh, even tranquility and inner peace as they approach their death. But there is no inner peace in Gethsemane. Something different, something horrible, something so unimaginable that it can take the eternal Son of God who created the universe throw him to his knees in torment. It's not the thought of death, but if you look at the passage, it's the thought of the cup. Look at what he prays in verse 39. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And again there in verse 42, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be be done. It's the cup that is the source of Christ's torment. Now to us that sounds strange and and foreign. What does Matthew mean by that? But actually to Matthew's original Jewish readers, this would have been a really shocking statement. Because the cup in the Old Testament, in fact all the way throughout the Bible, the cup is symbolic of one thing, And that is the wrath and the anger of God. So it was one example of this. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. Um, Jeremiah chapter 25. It's on page um, 785 of the church Bibles. Jeremiah chapter 25 verses 15 to 17. Jeremiah writes, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn and cursing as they are today. So that's what the cup is. The cup is the cup of God's anger that is so terrifying that Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel all say it just levels entire nations. That is the cup that Jesus is about to drink. That is what's going to happen to him on the cross. And the very thought of that crushes him. But the reason he'll do it is that this is the way that we are to be saved. Because the cup of wrath that he is about to drink is the wrath that we deserve All the wrongdoing that we have done in life, all our vile thoughts, all our vile words and deeds, that is what alienates us from God. God cannot let any form of evil go unchecked or unpunished because he is a good God. He is a holy God. 
But rather than us facing the wrath that we deserve, God has found a way to make us right and still punish our sin. And it's by Jesus stepping into our place to drink our punishment. You see, Jesus in Gethsemane is contemplating having to face the wrath of God. He's contemplating this idea that he is about to be ripped from that love that he knew with God the Father before the very foundations of the world so that we could be brought into it. This is what our salvation is going to cost. You see, Jesus stands on the edge of the furnace of God's fury and anger and he gazes down and sees its horror and it's so overwhelming to him but he knows that if we are to be saved from it he has to be cast into it. Brothers and sisters, if the mere contemplation of the cross is doing this to Jesus imagine the horror of when it actually did happen. I can't, I can't illustrate what happens in this garden because there's literally nothing in reality that is analogous to this event. No amount of suffering, no amount of anguish that we may face uh, as a church or as individuals, nothing can come close to what Jesus is experiencing here. If there is to be any hope of us being brought back to God, Jesus has to drink this cup. This is what he came to do. And this is what he has to do or we will be lost. And here we see the second key thing. The first key thing, the torment of the cup. The second key thing to understand in Gethsemane and the cross is the obedience of Christ. See, although Christ is in agony as he contemplates the terror of the cross, he is nevertheless wholeheartedly committed to it. He is committed to doing his Father's will. Look at what he prays there. If it is possible, take this cup away from me. In other words, the burden of this is so much that it's unbearable. But look at what he says. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42, if it is not possible this cup be taken away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. Three times he prays in this passage. Father, if there's any other way that I can rescue these people, if there's any possible way to save humanity that does not involve me drinking this cup, then take it from me. Three times he prays, and three times Jesus is met with silence from heaven. Because there is no other way. And although the pain of this nearly kills him, he is determined, absolutely determined, to do his Father's will. Jesus is the perfect servant of God, obedient to the will of his father. The book of Isaiah uh, in the Bible, it was written well over 600 years before Jesus came, speaks about him and describes this event. And in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, Stuart actually read to us earlier, um, 
Isaiah says, is talking about the servant of God, talking about Jesus, and says this, the servant of God, that is Jesus, will be crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that has brought us peace will be laid on him. By his wounds we will be healed. That psalm that we just sung, what's so powerful about that psalm, it's not that it describes us and the suffering we face, but that's a psalm that was describing Jesus and the suffering that he faced. And Isaiah states that this will happen because it is the will of God to crush him and cause him to suffer. Because after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, God says, will justify many. See, Adam, if Adam had obeyed God, Adam would have had life and fellowship with him. And yet he failed to do it. If Jesus obeys God... He'll be crushed and forsaken by him. And he does it. His obedience is infinitely greater than Adam's, infinitely greater than ours. Whereas Adam's disobedience in the garden meant that we are placed under the wrath of God and alienated from him, Jesus' obedience in the garden means that we can be saved from the wrath of God and brought back to him. And don't think of Jesus as just some mere whipping boy in this passage. Jesus is not doing this against his will. His will is to do the Father's will. In John 10, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is the triune God's plan of salvation for us. This this is what was planned before the foundations of the world were created. This is what Jesus came to do. And what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is that our salvation, regardless of who we are, regardless of what we've done, our salvation is dependent upon one thing, the obedience of Jesus. And he is perfectly obedient, even in the face of hell itself. He could have stopped. He could have just said, why? Why should I do this? Why should I I throw myself under the weight of, of divine wrath for them? There's nothing in you or me that is worthy of saving, nothing that he needs, nothing that's attractive or worthy of his grace. But his love for us in his obedience to the Father, drive him to say, your will be done. And we see in verse 46 that he rises. Really, this is his last great temptation in the garden. He rises from this last temptation and says to his disciples, rise, let us go. He will do this. He will save us. What a relief it is to see that our salvation is about his determination, not ours. And finally, Matthew really wants to show us just how much this is dependent upon Jesus and not us by emphasizing the third key point in this, the torment of the cup, the obedience of Christ, and thirdly, the failure 
of the disciples. See, these three disciples that followed Jesus into Gethsemane, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, these men are Jesus' closest friends and followers. This is Jesus' greatest moment of need. If ever he needed support and comfort in his entire ministry, it is at this moment. And what do they do? They sleep. You know, James and John, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 20, um, they, they said to Jesus that, that they could drink the cup that Jesus was going to drink. They had no clue, really, what they were saying. But they were claiming, really, we are so committed to you. We will be committed to you right to the very end. And look at what Peter says, actually, in the bit that Matthew puts right before this incident. Uh, after um, Jesus talks about the fact that Peter will disown him, Peter says this in verse 35, r- immediately before Gethsemane, he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. The three men with Jesus in his moment of greatest need are his most committed followers. And Matthew shows us just how much they fail. Jesus goes to them and he asks for help. Verse 40, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He says it to Peter, that most loyal, most committed disciple. Couldn't you keep watch with me just for one hour? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, there's a a willingness there with them. There is a willingness with Peter. I will not disown you, Lord. How how many of us have have heard a sermon uh, or or a talk that we found particularly invigorating and particularly helpful, and we've walked out of that talk saying, I am never going to do that sin again. I am never going to indulge in sin at all. I am going to put that to death, and I am going to follow Christ wholeheartedly from now on. How many of us have done that or thought that way? And then it's not long before the Monday or the Tuesday we find that that loyalty wavers. We find ourselves drifting into sins that we we don't want to be part of. We try. We can be determined. We can get it into our heads that we are going to get up each morning and we are going to have a quiet time. We're going to spend time reading God's word and praying to him. And then we find that Our quiet times become just a little too quiet. And we're dozing. And Matthew's showing us ourselves in these disciples. We may have the right motives and and willingness, but our loyalty to him will always falter. But you see, what's happening here in the garden is not dependent upon the disciples' loyalty. Look at their loyalty. It's not brilliant. I mean, these aren't bad guys. This is the creme de la creme of humanity. This is the foundation of the church of Christ. When it comes to our salvation, the disciples do nothing. When it comes to our salvation, we do nothing. We are completely useless for our salvation. No matter what you do, even the best, most committed follower of Jesus will in the end just be a sleepy weakling. 
But it never was about us. You see that in Gethsemane? This is Jesus' mission. Only he can drink this cup. And as he falls to his knees in this prayer, the very people he is dying for, his loyalist followers have failed him. And the cup of wrath he is about to drink, he will drink for those who fail him. I want to wrap this up by just taking all this passage together and asking, what are we to do with this passage? Often when, I think when we hear a passage preached on, we want to know, well, what should I do now in light of this? And I would say, actually, maybe be careful of thinking like that. Because application for a passage like this is not so much about what we do, but about what we know. Matthew's telling us this not so that we can do something. You know, it's not an example of obedience, though we do have a perfect example of obedience. It's not just an example of how to deal with suffering. There is a perfect example there in Jesus. It's not even an example on how to pray, though there is a perfect example there. That's already, Matthew's taught us that. Jesus taught us that uh, earlier on in Matthew 5 to 7. But Matthew's telling us this so that we can know something, so that we can know the cross and understand what happened there. And I think he emphasizes two key points that Gethsemane shows us. It shows us the seriousness of our sin, and it shows us the seriousness of his love. When you look at what happens in the garden here in this passage, Um, And I have a tendency to do this, to view it almost just like it's mere history or even just some sort of abstract thing. But actually, look at how you yourself fit into this. See, don't you realize that the cup that Jesus is about to drink, that's the punishment and the wrath that you deserve, that I deserve, those wretched acts of self-centeredness, those sins of, of lust, of anger, of gossip and pride, those wicked thoughts, those deceitful words, those vile deeds, all that you have ever done in life, all God's anger for every single one of our wrongdoings, big and small, is mingled together in this one cup that Jesus will drink. And it crushes him. And that is the wrath that I deserve that has done that to the Son of God in this passage. Jesus says in verse 45 to his disciples, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. And Matthew's such a, a subtle writer. It, it has a double meaning. This is not just the people that have come to arrest Jesus. That is all of us here today Why is he in this agony? Why is he under this pressure? Why does he face this unimaginable horror? Because of you and me. It's because of our sin that he is required to be there at that moment. It's no overstatement or exaggeration to say that we are the ones who killed Jesus. Because it was because of our sin 
that he was required to be on that cross. It's our sin he had to die for. And although, I mean, when you see that, you see what our sin did to him, it shows us just how how serious it is and how, how bad it is. But Matthew also emphasizes here just how serious God's love is for us, just how serious Christ's love is. Such an act of love has never been seen anywhere in the world. No one, no matter how close they are to you, can love you like this. No one has ever done something like this for you. See, Jesus drank that cup right to its bitterest dregs. All that wrongdoing, past, present, future, has been dealt with. He has drank the punishment for it all. See, this is not some sentimental, wishy-washy, God is love idea where God is some abstract being, far off, removed, and uninvolved. This is real, radical, costly love. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what he offers you today. You see, the cup of God's wrath will not go away. And if Jesus doesn't drink it, then you will have to. But he offers to deal with your wrongdoing, so trust him. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot look at this passage and you cannot question whether God loves you. You know, there's times where you will feel far, you will feel cold and indifferent to the gospel. There's times where we may feel ashamed of sin that we're constantly doing and how we constantly fail him. But you can't look at Gethsemane and question whether Jesus will stop loving you after what we've just read. How can you? Look at what he's done already for you. We can't undo that. You see, praise God that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not about us. We are sleepy weaklings, but here we have one who is strong where our flesh is weak. What a saviour we worship and what good news we have to proclaim and tell others about. His cross with its free offer of salvation is what I hope will always be at the heart of this church. And I hope all our lives, it's what drives us, it's what motivates us, and it's what changes us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you in your love sent your son to die for us. Lord, that you sent him knowing that you love him and that he would have to face an unbearable uh, amount of suffering so that we could be saved. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and you were willing to undergo that so that we could be saved. Lord, we know that uh, as we see what happens here in Gethsemane, that our sin is so serious. As we see what our sin did to you, Lord Jesus, and the torment that you had to face 
as you contemplated the cross, as you contemplated having to drink the cup of wrath that we deserve. Lord, help us to understand that so that we will learn to hate sin and to pursue holiness. But Father, here we see also the seriousness of your love. Lord Jesus, how you did that because you love us, because you want to rescue us, you want to undo what our father Adam did and bring us back to you. And thank you, Lord, that it is done and that it is finished and that our sin has been dealt with. The cup has been drunk by you. Lord Jesus, we praise you for that wonderful truth. We praise you, Lord, that the gospel is not about our obedience to you and how well we can do, but it's about how obedient Christ was and what he has already done. Lord, help us to not let that truth of what we see in Gethsemane drift from our minds this week. Help us not to have a cold or an indifferent approach to the cross, but to daily be marveling at its wonder and the cost of salvation, of what it cost you to bring us back to you. Thank you, Lord, that it is done and that it is finished and that we can be saved by trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee .org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.